Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. I'm your host, Katie Butner, and I'm so excited that you're here today. The episode that you're going to listen to is not one, but two incredible researchers. The first, Dr. Samina Mula, and the second, Dr. Heather Halafka. They are incredible collaborators, but also give a lot of really interesting context to their experiences that have led them to the work. As always, that is a main focus of these conversations is really understanding people's pathways to their current research and their current areas of expertise. But they also talk a lot about their collaboration, how that has worked, what they are both interested in, and really what guides them in the incredible work that they do. I'm going to sort of let the episode speak for itself and just encourage you to really dive in. So grab your coffee, enjoy this conversation, and I'll see you for the next episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. My name is Samina Mulla, and I'm an anthropologist, and I have been working on primarily ethnographically based work, meaning field research on sexual assault intervention since about 2004. And I'm probably best known for my book, The Violence of Care, which is about sexual assault interventions in a emergency room in Baltimore, Maryland, although people from all over the country read the book and tell me that the scenes seem very familiar. And I did the work at that time, not just as an anthropologist, but as a rape crisis advocate with a role to play in the courtroom. And I'm here today with my collaborator, Heather Holovka, who's going to introduce herself as well. Hi, I'm Heather Holovka. Nice to be here. Thank you. I am in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences at Marquette University. I have worked on issues of sexual violence since being an undergrad. So I have a long history of, of working in crisis intervention and community work. At that time, that kind of got me into the space of research and thinking about the role of research in prevention and intervention of sexual victimization. Most of my work has focused on children and children's experiences of sexual violence and how they describe those experiences. So some of my work focuses on how children talk about and and youth, young people talk about their experiences and kind of normalize those experiences. So that work was published in Gender and Society and, and it got picked up a lot. I am by training a sociologist and specializing in qualitative methodologies, including ethnography, discourse analysis, and interviewing. So most of my work really uses those kind of methods to better understand people's experiences and how they talk about those experiences of violence. Awesome. Thank you both. Um, Those are both very fascinating and a little bit kind of outside of the norm of my conversation, right? I'm typically talking with specifically social workers. And so to speak to folks who have a little bit of a different background or different training specialty is exciting. And to hear that you have had what sounds like similar but different backgrounds and now are merged together in kind of in doing this collaborative work. So I have about a million different questions, but I think my first one is going to be to talk a bit about how you came to work together and what that work at least initially consists of. 
It's really funny. This is Samina. I, when I introduced myself, I didn't mention that I'm transitioning between institutions right now. So part of the way Heather and I came to collaborate is we were hired together in the same department at Marquette University, which has both anthropology and sociology. It also actually has a social work component to it. So many of our colleagues are social workers. And we recognize that we had very similar research interests and definitely complementary and overlapping. And so we really spent a great deal of time. I think many researchers in this area are very aware of how challenging it is to do this kind of work. You want to do it well. You want to do it with some cognizance that it it's it's painful work oftentimes, so particularly when you are um, in the spaces that we move in. And so we were thinking about how to blend our complementary expertise and what we came to, because Heather has um, such expertise in child forensic interviewing, and I had spent four years observing sexual assault forensic intervention, was a question about what people are doing with this with this evidence, right? After, after the interventions take place, the evidence is collected, the interviews are done. Where does this go? We certainly had a sense of what people thought was happening with that evidence and had both written about that earlier. And so what we designed was actually a courtroom ethnography. There's a great deal of research out there that tells us that going to court is, is a complicated affair in terms of how participants in these processes feel about the outcome. There's also very good research that shows us that all of this kind of expertise and, and technical innovation that has come about in terms of forensic science and interviewing techniques has not really impacted the outcomes of trials, right? Which is wonderful when you're qualitative researchers because even if there isn't an impact on the outcomes, one does have a sense that the process must be changing. And so we were very curious about what that process looked like in trial. And so we did a courtroom ethnography and we recruited a pretty robust team of very talented and certainly adventurous undergraduate research assistants who came to trial with for over a year. And that is the project that I mean, we started this work about 10 years ago. And so we just finished this book that's called Bodies and Evidence, Race, Gender, Science, and Sexual Assault Adjudication. It's coming out November 2021. And, and we did it, I think, with a real eye for detail. We really pushed each other and were pushed also by our research assistants who learned a lot about qualitative uh, research and ethnographic observations. We observed over 680 courtroom hearings, including I think 34 full-length trials, and we have quite a lot to say about it. So, you know, I think it was it was possible to do such uh, deep work in part because we had each other, and that not just for the technical and methodological issues that arise with this type of research, but also because we were able to be supportive of one another and supportive of our research assistants. Thank you, Sunina. Now, I'll add as well, you know, that 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 beginning was really, you know, as Samina says, being very careful about how we wanted to create a new project together. And we both have experiences in our communities working with violence, again, as, as educators, as advocates and activists. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's 
going out on a limb to say we probably both even thought about social work and, and, you know, at some point. And so knowing about those spaces and the wonderful work that people do in those spaces, a lot of it was thinking through, well, how is that work translated right into, into that courtroom experience? So how is the evidence brought in that the forensic investigators get when they talk to, they do forensic interviews with, with youth, right? And children, where does that evidence land and how is it taken up by by the public and and in this case we're talking about juries and the same thing with Samina's intimate experiences in you know the emergency rooms and hospitals right when that kind of forensic evidence is taken and, and DNA evidence where does it go right and all that painstaking work that all those people are doing including social workers many people don't know where it goes and they they often told us I don't know what happened with this case I was never called to court I wish I would have known or I I had some you know outcome because they care about the people they're working with and so we were really interested as as Samina says in like what was that process like and where were those end pieces going and it was just by sheer luck that <laughs> we you know, started at the same time at the same department and really made these connections over time. I have never worked with another person on a project with sexual violence. It seems to be a very lonely and solo enterprise because, you know, academics and researchers are spread so far across the country in different institutions. And this was just a wonderful meeting that worked out really well. And the experience of working with such a wonderful group of people Mina, our research assistants, was something that I'd never experienced before. And I mean, I hope I experience in the future. I'm not so sure because it really is rare, you know, to be able to bounce off those, those questions with each other through text messaging, through our daily activities of sitting in court, through just working through the emotional labor that it takes in this work was very new to me. And it's also something that certainly I don't think researchers are trained in, Right. We don't talk very much about sharing our emotions and experiences through all this. And in fact, I would argue that oftentimes it's, it's trained out of us as if that's not objective work. And what we really do argue, you know, over and over again is that that produces such better knowledge, that that produces real in-depth, true knowledge. Once we can reflect on ourselves and our positionalities and our emotions and, and think about how is that being entered into the space and how are we making sense of the space according to that as well? Absolutely. I mean, just similarly, again, there's like 12 different parts. I, I think you bring up the really interesting point around the dynamic of your teamwork and like the emotional labor of research. And so I want to definitely come back to that. And maybe that's a great wrap up point for us to get to. But I think in the the interim, I'm curious to hear more about why it felt for both of you, again, given a bit of your background, why the courtroom and that process felt like the right space to put your energy and your time and, and your research. I think that um, there is a lot of research that we admire, like Amanda Conradi's work that has looked very seriously at the court of law and I can say as an anthropologist, it's just such an authoritative institution. 
And, you know, along with other kind of adjacent criminal justice enterprises that get an inordinate amount of resources. Like when we look at where funds flow and where expertise goes, right, just the sheer dollars that are invested in forensic intervention, in policing and in the courts, right, which somehow as they operate on the day-to-day basis, still seem somewhat anemically resourced, right? Because we're talking about public institutions. But we were really curious to see how things function in the day-to-day. And we're also very aware, kind of calling back to iconic work. Like people often forget that Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, right? Where she coins the term intersectionality. It's one of two pieces where she coins the term intersectionality, excuse me, really is about women of color navigating criminal justice institutions in cases of violence against women, right? And she's very clear in 1991 that this is not an easy experience, that it is not redemptive. It is difficult. There are different forms of oppression that are being visited on particularly victims of violence as they navigate these institutions. And I think Heather and I are very, very interested in the courts as a space, you know, not of prevention. I think a lot of us are very skeptical about the extent to which criminal justice response is actually a preventative measure. Um, And we weren't really looking to conduct a qualitative study, right, that provides an ethnographic description that's about optimizing the functioning of the courts, because in fact, we're interested in power. Um, and how power works for the public. And when that public comprises victims of violence, but also the people who have perpetrated violence against them, who often come from the same communities. Like when you are in a court of law and you are looking at criminal prosecution in the U.S., we conducted the study in Milwaukee, you will not see a representative uh, sample of who lives in this city, right? There is some deep racial gatekeeping and selection and sorting that happens, right? That tells us exactly, you know, which pathways kind of lead to criminal justice processes and, and, and prosecution. So when we think about the experiences of survivors and also of personnel within criminal justice systems, for us, there are these much larger questions that take a look at, you know, how the court through its intervention into sexual violence is actually really functioning as a, as a kind of site of social reproduction of, of racial hierarchy of gendered hierarchies as well, right? I mean, a lot of the rhetoric that we hear in, in courts is, is not just racist, it's also you know, very much invested in gender roles, like we know this in terms of victimology, right? But I think the other thing that's so interesting about the court as a site of research is that it's one of the few spaces where you get to bring together the victim and also the person who has perpetrated violence against them their respective supporters, and the personnel who played a part in the intervention. And we see them all operating in the same space with different access to power, with different kinds of expertise. And I think a lot of research on um, the prevention of sexual harm really divides up the field so that we sort of look at okay, let's look at judges over there and prosecutors over there and rape crisis advocacy over there and domestic violence over there. And the perpetrator goes in this corner over here as if people don't live and operate in the same world. And so in some ways, like the court, it's very rarefied and we 
absolutely understand that most cases do not end up in the court of law. But as a kind of limit case, it really can be very revealing about what our investments are um, as a culture in, in terms of intervention and healing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Heather, I want to give you the opportunity if you have anything you want to add. So I think then considering what has come out of that work, like what, when, because also just 10 years of being immersed in that, in that process with your team, with then the writing, with then the sorting through kind of like, how do you, how do you consider what your findings are and then how you present them. Can you speak a bit to what feels like, and it's like the impossible question, but like maybe some of your strongest or most salient takeaways and also the, what you maybe think having that amount of time has allowed for that possibly doesn't happen in other types of research as well. I think, you know, maybe what I'll start with quickly is building off of what Samina described as this intimate community and space where we see all these entities coming together and something, you know, the way that we structured our book is really trying to bring the reader into this trial process and really revealing in each track how the trial process can unfold for one case, one, you know, victim witness, and also seeing how they all intersect and play with each other and off each other. And so the way we um, structure our book is actually taking the reader um, through each of these points and intertwining them. Oftentimes, each chapter is kind of focused around a particular witness. So we can say we kind of open the book and this is this interweaving again of who is in the space. And it's kind of a really, I mean, for us, it was a really important way to present the material to make it readable, you know, but also we were really very careful as well to think about how we presented the material, not to sensationalize it or sensationalize, you know, some of the you know, quite, you know, honestly, gruesome cases and, and descriptions of violence, but also not to sanitize it either. And so a lot of our work over those years was really thinking through what we saw and how to present it and in ways that does everyone some justice, right, in, in the work. So we do open the book are kind of setting the stage and the context for the Milwaukee County Felony Courts. We talk about Milwaukee, its history, we trace some of that through this ethnographic method. I think your question about the time is really important because we don't get this kind of context and in-depth understanding of a space or and how those players interweave throughout that without being there, without really de developing this observational method and sitting in that space, which we did day in and day out, right? From eight in the morning to five at night, every day that we were able to just observe all the, the fluid motions throughout the space and what was happening. And that we believe, you know, can tell us some. In the next chapter, after kind of this opening of context, we turn to jury selection and thinking through how judges and attorneys 
sensitize the public. In this case, obviously the, the jurors to issues of race and place, Milwaukee and sexual violence. So really thinking through the discourse and the cultural narratives that come out there to prepare the jurors, maybe they will then anticipate what is to come in the trial. Chapter two, then we, we intimately focus on the victim witness testimony during cross, uh, direct and cross-examination, really as a central figure of the trial. And testimony is still the central evidence of the trial. The victim witness is the first to come into that space, usually. And then followed by a police officer, a sensitive crime detective that may be followed by a sexual assault nurse examiner or sane nurse who obviously perhaps saw the, the victim witness at the hospital, collected forensic examination and evidence from her body, and then moving to the forensic scientist who then is tasked with analyzing that, that material and interpreting it for all the jurors for the court to hear. We also include a chapter on the defendants. And again, this is a important and essential element that we brought in to think about how the defendant speaks, when they choose to speak. They oftentimes don't speak during trial. They don't choose to testify, but we find that they do testify, they do speak, they do testify, or their family or friends or coworkers do at sentencing hearings. So a lot of that extra hearings was taking, you know, preliminary hearings, sentencing hearings, plea bargains, all that material. And when the, when the defendant, when the court speaks about the defendant, we bring that in in the end as well to kind of Think about how everyone is embedded in the system and, and what happens and where's the violence that happens because the violence happens everywhere. It's not, we oftentimes, we'll see the literature and the research and, you know, maybe our public knowledge is really about how the victim is treated at court and how sometimes we call that secondary victimization, right, by the system. We, you know, we argue that really everyone is impacted by the system and everyone is, you know, experiences the violence of the state, right? And so we really wanted to show as we move throughout those chapters, how the violence of the state, the carceral state is working through each of those expert witness testimony, lay witness testimony, family and friends who enter the space, community members who enter the space. There's a whole gallery of people and supporters sometimes that are brought into this space that we just don't read about very much, right? And instead, we really read about the forensic evidence in this 21st century, you know, courtroom. But really what we find is, is it comes down to testimony, right? And it comes down to the interpretations of everyone's testimony. And I'll let Samina kind of build off of that a little bit about some of the, the actual arguments we make. So Heather already pointed out one thing is that in 10 years time, you can spend a lot of energy developing a way to write about sexual violence that is not pornographic, but is both properly, appropriately weighty, but still in a way invites the reader into a conversation. And that's been something that's been very critical to us at every single stage and something that we continue to revisit and something we try to teach our students because I think it's really important. Now, in terms of this past study, I think with our interest in the forensic science, one of the big takeaways in, in, in the past 10 years is that almost um, every member of the public tends to overestimate the potential of forensic science to resolve questions of guilt and innocence. And 
The trial almost exclusively functions to manage the expectations of the participants to explain to them how forensic science actually works, what its limitations are, and in most of the cases we saw, why there was no forensic evidence in the first place. And that serves to make way for testimony. The other thing that we most definitely argue again is that you know, for some people, there is a sense that one experiences a sense of, of justice, but many, if not most of the people who participate are very critical of their treatment and participation. So we think about, okay, if the trial is not producing, if the courts are not producing justice per se, right? Justice as it's defined by an individual in their community and how they might imagine themselves feeling whole, then what is it producing? And so there again, we return to the sense where the trial itself is really functioning as a kind of racial ordering machine. And what it does is it literally produces case archives, right? Precedent setting archives in which, you know, judges and all kinds of courtroom personnel narrate in all of this knowledge of what it means to victimize and be victimized and what it means to do that from the perspective of a, a particular community. And so courts are interesting places because almost everybody at this point knows not to say blatantly racist things, right? But at the same time, because it's an adversarial system, you do hear people engage in these sort of secondary discourses. There are all kinds of code words that really condemn Black Milwaukee quite specifically. And interestingly, that's a different condemnation when we're thinking about what gets said about defendants and actually what gets said about their victims. Because we know with sexual violence that these tend to be intercommunity issues, if not intrafamilial, right? A lot of times we're talking about people who are in the same kinship networks. And so the way that Black men and women and Black boys and girls, because sometimes they were very young people, are, are criminalized on both sides of this adversarial process, right? That's what endures. And it endures in a way that it actually becomes the the kind of scaffolding for the next case and the next case. And where we're working in Milwaukee, there's also been not an overrepresentation, but there's quite a few Latinx and community members who also are being are making their way through the court in these cases. And you can also kind of hear the court floundering because Latinidad is like a new, a newer kind of ethnic uh, category for the courts to, to decide. So you can hear some of that kind of floundering, like what is the story one tells about sexual violence in predominantly Mexican-American communities here in, in Milwaukee. So that is what the court is doing and it's using scientific authority to tell these stories now. But there are stories that are absolutely about reinscribing gender roles and reinscribing uh, kind of racial hierarchies. And we often compare that in the research that we're doing because we just sat there day after day. And clearly there are a lot of white defendants um, and white victims as well, but whiteness doesn't get the same treatment, right? It's the sort of great unmarked category. So you don't hear interesting commentary about the community will be so disappointed. You don't hear the same code words. Right. There's a kind of privilege that you get to be racially unmarked in that particular way as you make it through. So those are some of the big takeaways that just they took time to rise to the surface, because when you see something like that, you actually want to be really cautious in terms of your analysis. But after sitting with the material for that long and going through all of these patterns, I would say that the evidence is pretty compelling that this is, in fact, how the courts function. Thank you. It's both uh, incredibly 
engaging, uh, right? And it's a very, it leaves me very curious and like really interested to read your work and sort of the journey that your book will take us through. And also leaves me a little just disheartened, right? At the, the weight of that process and the acknowledgement, because I think, especially coming from, from that social work perspective that is a bit rooted or more rooted in the direct service element, right? Like you're saying that the the partners of the folks that are in the room kind of hoping to attach people to services or considering what supports might look like from or social supports might look like. There's often conversation again around those like intervention aspects of what court the 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 interaction with the legal system looks like. And yet there's a real lack of understanding around the the nuance, the context, the real just like the journey of what you're talking about. And it it I think it's really illuminating and really critical to the conversation of how we consider supporting anyone in a courtroom (laughs) and especially as we consider those intersectionalities of just how much kind of the the ability to take a slower longer look really changes what you can see in terms of considering where those intervention points might be what, how those conversations take a next step, you know, and, and really kind of a part of where we're putting a lot of band-aids on things that don't actually address the undercurrent structure that's happening. And like what you're saying, this really, I think, important, and again, not that I need to label it that way, but, you know, this really critical component of the, the recreation of that, like, racial hierarchy and the sort of social structures that we see so much happening in outside of the courtroom sort of recreating themselves in this space as well i'm excited to read your book here's to november and congratulations on <laughs> on making it through i'm sure that it's also a very a good time to be talking to you now that you're on this side of the journey and not the, the you know in the middle of it maybe i know writing a book can be quite a process I think that I'd love to hear you speak a bit on that as kind of a precursor to my very last question, but to speak a bit about that, what you mentioned, the research dynamic. So when you're considering how you were allowed or how you were able to structure the project, and as you mentioned, I think the emotional labor component that we don't get to talk about what do you see as some of those really big changes or really big like impacts that that group dynamic offered you to create in a research environment that like, like you're saying, it's just really unheard of. I'll start. Thank you. We have thought, yeah, a lot about what this process offered. And for us, we write, we're actually writing about this in several places because we are really, I think, proud of the environment we created for our research assistants, but also able to reflect on that process and think what we have developed and gained. And I love that your questions really are, you know, focused on the time 
and the qualitative nature of this, because, you know, I think not only is that one of the biggest gaps that I see in the field and, you know, and I, and I, I think that has been even more than the last couple decades of where we're pushing some of that work to the side in our kind of like world of rapidly changing knowledge and desire for the push for fast data and fast answers and, and the interventions. And for us and the questions that you have posed here, it just, it just shows you that we cannot do that in this, in the nature that's, that's fast and quick. And, you know, we need to spend time and context to really think through um, what is happening in such spaces and what's happening to ourselves. And so, you know, I might speak a little bit about the method and that space between all of us as, as, but also as like people, right? I think oftentimes we don't think about researchers as people and the fact that both Samia and I had toddlers at the time that we entered the courts, that we were caring for children, that we were caring for parents, that we were caring for families, that our research assistants were trying to get through undergrad, that several of our assistant, our research assistants, our wonderful grad student now, Amber Powell, was from Milwaukee and lived here and knew the spaces and the communities in such an intimate, different way than we did. And so our positionalities, our intersectionality, not only opened up the space for new knowledge and information, it allowed us to connect and learn from each other. We have different races and ethnicities, class experiences, even as, as professors during that time, I mean, we had a different positionality than our research assistants, right? And that power we navigated and we were able to talk through. We write about in other spaces, you know, what Amber as a African-American woman in Milwaukee experienced in the courts, what Samina experienced and what me as a white woman experienced. And those are all very different because of our bodies, because of our positionality and, and how we were situated in the courts, that we were able to come together and share those different data points, right? That different knowledge that was produced and gained just because we are different people navigating that space. So for example, Amber was sometimes thought of as uh, wondering, you know, the court personnel might wonder if she was a, a partner of one of the people in court, oftentimes the defendant, right? Or were you a family member sitting and waiting for a court case when really she was there observing and taking field notes? Oftentimes I was at, wondered and asked if I was an attorney or a social worker that was in that space. Samina got the social worker attorney as well and other things. And so just by us being in that space in our bodies as different as they were, that generated completely different information that I never would have received, right? If it had just been me going into that space as a, as a white woman. And that, working through that, reflecting on that, reflecting on how we then analyze that experience, the emotion and the, the labor it took to discuss, we always had breaks and we always were able to kind of work through some of that. It took a long time. Right. I mean, that takes time and space and energy and emotion. And it's really, really well done if everyone can do that together. And so it was really essential to kind of peel, you know, peel back those layers of how knowledge is created and how it can speak to each other as as researchers and as humans, like living in this in this space and 
and thinking through how we were impacted, right? You know, maybe I'll end with one more reflection that there are several cases that we tried to divide up and kind of cover as much ground as we could. There's a lot of hearings happening, but sometimes we always had text messages, right? So, you know, if Samina was in a courtroom and she would maybe tell me, I I can't sit here anymore. I can't listen to this. I need to leave. We need to know that we have to leave that space and maybe someone can come in and, and pick up where, you know, that other person left or not, right? We also had to acknowledge things that we just, maybe we couldn't hear, you know? They, in those courts, there's also homicides and there were like child homicides that at some points we were like, I'm not, we're not gonna watch this, you know? And that should be okay. And we acknowledge that with each other, but also help each other to kind of uh, decompress through that, but also picking up for each other, right? And, and those, like, I gotta go, okay, come into this courtroom. So there's so many multiple advantages to this kind of teamwork. And yeah, it takes way more time and energy and humanness and connection. But all I'll say is like, it, it's way worth it. And not only just because of the, the clearer, better situated knowledge that develops from that, that we can now kind of come up with our arguments and be very clear and forthright and, and convinced, but also our experience through that process. Do you want me to add a couple of things? I haven't said the F word yet, feminist. So, you know, I will say that, you know, we are feminist researchers and anthropological traditions around feminist research also make me very skeptical of kind of traditional uh, Anglo-American epistemological projects, right? So reading about indigenous epistemologies, there is this you know, major pushback against the notion that emotion doesn't have anything to do with knowledge production or or even that, you know, we have any anthropology, something called sensory anthropology and how uh, sort of tapping into different sensory modalities and tapping into different emotional registers isn't just about uh, kind of sacrificing objectivity. It's not that at all. Like this is intuition and these are things that need to be recorded and attended to and come back. So even in, in this process of, you know, from day to day supporting everybody as they navigated the courtrooms, we were also making note of where these tender areas are that will require some kind of unpacking and some kind of analysis. And, you know, it, you can be moved in lots of different ways. It's not always negative emotion. Um, if you sat through something and you just felt very energized, right, that's something that requires a certain kind of analysis. And so those kinds of notes would also go into the field notes. And we talked to each other and to our students about making sure they're recording those kinds of insights into the field notes, even if it's a sort of side uh, note that that's something to come back to. And, you know, I will also say again, I, I just wish there were more women of color among violence against women researchers. And so it was incredibly instructive to be able to, I'm, I'm Asian American, my family's from India, but People don't always know that in the courts and Amber Powell and I both speak Spanish as well. And so sometimes we'd be helping people out in navigating the courtroom space and we would be mistaken for being Latinas, which is always very interesting. And I will say that, you know, I think Heather alluded to this, but I'm just going to come out and say it. Courtrooms are like very social, courthouses are very social spaces. They are meat markets. And there's a lot of sexual harassment that goes on as well. And so age and class and race and ethnicity 
absolutely. I mean, you would think that one wouldn't have to deal with sexual harassment in the in the courtroom. It was a big deal for everybody navigating that space. And, and we all experienced it in very different ways. So that was also, you know, quite sobering thinking about like, well, what is this space? It was a great reminder from a methodological perspective. Like we are not outside the world. All of the same rules apply. And to a certain extent, they're intensified within the space of, of the courtroom as well. So I thought it was a really productive team ethnography approach. And we certainly kind of innovated as we went along, even things like using email for memoing, at least weekly, oftentimes daily. I mean, that became just a wonderful repository. And so we were able to extract those and, you know, put them with the field notes for further analysis. And you're sort of developing your sensitizing concepts as you go along. So Heather noticed a pattern where oftentimes there's just a lot of talking about fatherhood in very dramatic ways in in sexual assault cases, right? What kind of father did you have? What kind of father are you? And so she picked up on it. And so she asked the rest of us to try to pay attention to that. And so you can really see that reflected in the material. And so, you know, it's it's wonderful to be able to kind of validate each other's observations in that way and to to attenuate an observation. And you can do that over time. If you're just in there for, you know, a day or two or a week or two or one case, you're not going to be able to to pick up on some of those things. But in this case, over more than a year, we were definitely able to do that. And it sounds like it's that group element too, like you were speaking to. It's like, it's the time and it's also being able to have a dynamic of a team and like people that you can have conversations with that discuss what's going on and, and kind of externalize it and humanize it to an extent, you know, to be able to say like, we are still people having reactions and identities and experiences in this setting as well that inform how we're processing. And, you know, we've all been in those places of just like, the minute you say something out loud, you hear it differently, right? And then like, it, it being able to go through that, it changes, it, it really has the power to change a lot of your thinking or just allow you to, to, to come to a conclusion or work out something in a way that wouldn't happen if it was only kind of sitting in our bodies and our being without being able to be processed verbally in that way. So I am, again, just kind of like, I wish I could talk for a million other hours about it, but we won't and we'll read your book. So I do, as the last question, always ask everyone, you know, if you had a kind of unrestricted research dollars and sort of thinking about your framing of like what you see as the important points in the field, like what would you want to see happen next of like the dream next step of research for you both? whether that's together, whether that's in a new venture. I think some of it will probably be together and some of it will, you know, maybe be solo or with other collaborators. But something Heather and I have been talking about for a while, we started, you know, with a heavy interviewing kind of portion of, of this first project. And we interviewed forensic nurses from all over the state in Wisconsin and I'm moving from Wisconsin to Georgia. I'm starting a position at Emory University at, in, this week, actually, in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. And just looking at the maps and these, you know, way there's such a difference between rural and urban spaces. And I do think about how so much of my work has been in cities, Baltimore and Milwaukee. And I think that there are very instructive lessons to be taken from cities but I also think about um, 
what rural forensic nurses were taking us, telling us, you know, when we did our interviews and some of that didn't make its way into this book. And so I'm like, oh, I would love to, to dive back into that because, you know, there you're really thinking about very small communities, which are even less resourced than the, the urban centers where people really know each other very, very well. And that might be like the nurse knows the police officer, knows the victim, knows the perpetrator, knows the judge, where the police departments have very different sets of resources. Here in Wisconsin, we're also talking about tribal authorities, particularly up north. And so there's questions about who has jurisdiction and even respecting Indigenous and Native sovereignty in the state of Wisconsin. And so I think sexual assault prevention and response in rural communities really challenges us to think uh, beyond, you know, this sort of lock them up mentality. And so we were really thinking that there might be something there to kind of comparing Georgia and Wisconsin and really thinking about all of the different ways in which these these interventions and these resources like become very, very particular and, and tied to people's lives. And of course, you know, questions around race and class, I think really do need more kind of localized treatment when it comes to research in the United States. I mean, that's, that's how we do it internationally as anthropologists. And somehow the U.S. always evades that same kind of, that same kind of principle and everything becomes generalizable. And I think I'm like, listen, not every place is New York or Baltimore or Milwaukee. Like there are these other places where all these things still matter, but they matter in, in really different ways. And it's been interesting because Heather has a new line of research where she's really been thinking about restorative justice and transformative justice. And so I think that in some ways this project uh, might kind of dovetail with some of her interests around issues of restorative justice, which I will let her talk about because I am really happy that she's been moving into this area. I think, you know, and we, the rural really does move into that. I mean, if we think about restorative justice and transformative justice is coming from Indigenous communities as rooted in community spaces. I mean, there's a plethora of, you know, knowledge from, from also, you know, produced by Black women who have been doing this, this work for decades and decades, their whole lives, right? Like what we, it's becoming a little bit more known as as transformative justice in, in larger public spaces. But, you know, I go back to thinking about, you know, unrestricted pot of money. I mean, goodness, like thinking about justice as outside of these carceral spaces, right? And I'm not saying that justice doesn't happen in that space for some people, but I do believe and have observed and, you know, truly seen that it is extremely rare. And as we started with, and we continue to, to show in the book that sexual victimization, domestic violence, violence against women and children are about kinship and it's about intimacy. And I don't think there's any way to really think about these issues of prevention and intervention without thinking through it intergenerationally, without really paying attention to um, what has happened to to those who have caused that harm as as well, right? So thinking about the connections between, well, if if it was my uncle that sexually victimized me, how is the family going to deal with that situation? And 
first off, we know it's oftentimes not in the court system. And that's predominantly by white families as well. We, it's not dealt through the court system, right? And then again, when we do see it dealt with in the urban systems like Milwaukee, we're going to see this huge racialization happening. And that transforms into who's ultimately incarcerated, whose bodies and families and kin are, are incarcerated and implicated and transformed and harmed by this process. So I would love to reinvest our meager resources in thinking about what is justice outside of these spaces. I think many, many people are engaged in this work already, but you know, like you cut, like Katie said, if we're, if social workers are always, you know, saying I'm doing this to help the victim get to this point in the system, right? Or this is going to help them get their justice that they deserve. But that, but that space, that ultimate end goal is the court where we know justice isn't happening, where it's kind of other violences that are impacted upon these multiple bodies. If we pull back and imagine and have, you know, just able to expand our imagination about what is possible outside of, of these carcinal systems, I think that only leads us into restorative justice and transformative justice restorative that doesn't happen after the fact, right? I mean, I think we, we there's a difference there. We have a lot of restorative justice practices that are now entering into carceral spaces. So, you know, when, when people are incarcerated and they're working through this kind of process, this needs to happen in community spaces, it needs to happen outside of incarcerated spaces. And that would just be fantastic and well worth our, our energy and money for intervention and prevention. Well, here's to us all finding some unrestricted research dollars to do these great things. Thank you both so much for your time and for sharing your experience. And I look forward to your book. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. You can always find more of these coffee chats on our website, which is vawconsortium.rudkers.edu. And of course, you can always reach out to us via social media or via email. We are always happy to hear from you with your thoughts, your questions, your feedback, or just generally to give us a hello. As always, stay curious, ask questions, drink coffee, and we will see you for our next episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers.